This is case 18 from the book of Serenity. Zhao Zhu's dog. The introduction. A gold floating on the water. Push it down and it turns. A jewel in the sunlight. It has no definite shape. It cannot be attained by mindlessness, nor known by mindfulness. Immeasurably great people are turned about in the stream of words. Is there anyone who can escape? The main case. Monk asks Zhao Zhu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhu said, yes. The monk said, since it has, why is it then in this skin bag? Zhao Zhu said, because he knows, yet deliberately transgresses. Another monk asked Zhao Zhu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhu said, no. The monk then asked, all sentient beings have Buddha nature. Why does a dog have none then? Zhao Zhu said, because he still has impulsive consciousness. The verse. A dog's Buddha nature exists. A dog's Buddha nature does not exist. A straight hook basically seeks those who turn away from life. Chasing the air, pursuing fragrance, cloud and water travelers. In noisy confusion, they make excuses and explanations. Making an even presentation, he throws the shop wide open. Don't blame him for being careful in the beginning. Pointing out the flaw, he takes away the jewel. The king of Qin did not know Liang Zhangru. So here we are in the midst of our spring session, back to some regularity of sessions here after the height of the pandemic. Now having the privilege of coming up to this mountain to hold sessions in the fall and the spring, we experience the natural an uninterrupted ebb and flow of life. And we are presented with the most profound teachings of the Buddha Dharma. Beyond any teaching that can be conveyed through books and teshus, beyond our intellectual reasoning, conceptual exploration or personal interpretations, and beyond attainment and non-attainment, just through the simple observation of how this mountain shed layers in the fall and rejuvenates in the spring. Just by observing that, we are given a raw presentation of the continual and interconnected flow of growth and decay as a beautiful manifestation of life, precious and impermanent, beginningless, 
and endless. Nothing is above, nothing is below. And there is, of course, nothing special about witnessing impermanence through the changing seasons up here and witnessing it in our daily life at home. We all have been exposed to these teachings year after year, for decades. Mowing the lawn, blowing leaves, shoveling snow, seeing kids grow, discovering new wrinkles on our face or gray hair on our heads, feeling the body becoming less flexible and a bit more achy as we get older, witnessing the birth of new life forms or the death of people close to us. The teachings of impermanence are plentiful and ongoing. However, there is something special about stepping away from the usual vortex of our everyday life and come up here for a few days to be immersed in the depth of Sashin. When we are immersed in that depth, we don't have access to our usual favorite displacement activities. We're not juggling multiple daily responsibilities. So we can devote our full attention to being intimately present to whatever arises inside and out. Bearing witness to the state of our being, we become aware of arising tension or contraction and little by little soften the rigidity of the whole. Expand, release any grasping we encounter, and learn to rest, to rest in the embracing support of life. And while resting in the silence of Sashin and the embracing support of life, we can inquire about our view of impermanence in relation to the one who appears in this form and is sitting on this cushion for the time being. Our immediate and crude assumptions seem to inform us that the word impermanence refers to an ongoing process that acts upon a fixed entity or phenomena. Or in the particular case of the one sitting on this cushion, the self. So in conventional terms, we say, I am of an impermanence permanent nature, which seem to suggest a gap between the process of aging and the self who is aging. But is it truly this way? Or is it possible that I am nothing but impermanence itself? Or maybe I am the way impermanence shows up. Because if it's not for me being here, then what is impermanence? Or what is impermanent? Where is the divide? 
<coughs> examining impermanence on an intimate level can provide a great entry point to the most fundamental question of our existence as human beings. And it also has great implications of how, how we live our lives. So we should examine it carefully. This koan features a similar entry point using a traditional Buddhist term known as Buddha nature. The two monks in this story went to see Zhaozhu, Joshu, in Japanese, and asked him the same question. Does a dog have Buddha nature? My questioning or inquiring is an essential aspect of any spiritual exploration. But we need to know how to ask and how to listen to the answer. And we can ask questions for for the purpose of fortifying our assumptions about ourselves, others, or reality. We can ask questions with the sole intention of creating an opportunity to assert our fixed opinions and stay within the familiar and comfortable story or habitual consciousness. Unwilling or afraid to step out of what's familiar, afraid of change. So that's one way to ask questions. Or we can ask questions with the courage to explore beyond the familiar bounds of our known territory. Step into the unknown and truly be curious about life. So we can sit here in Sashin and ask in terms of being curious, what is this? Just what is this? Putting aside everything. And then allowing that which we are asking about to penetrate or welcome it. People often ask if, if Zen is a religion. It is a good example of asking a question which is based on I know what that is, meaning religion, and I'm wanna, I want to know if Zen is that. But do I really know what I'm asking about? Right? If I'm saying, is this that, I'm assuming that I know what that is. So when we ask, is, is it this? There is a clear divide between affirmation and negation. There is a yes and a no. And the question itself is often expressing the unwillingness to put aside the divide between affirmation and negation. Because if I affirm 
I negate. If I negate, I affirm. Either way, I'm jumping around between this and that. It doesn't matter which side I'm standing on. There is a very clear divide. So what is Buddha nature? How do we understand this commonly used phrase in our tradition? You know, for people that are not practicing, not involved in practice, the term Buddha nature actually may be more open if they're willing to be open. But for us as practitioners, after a while, we develop some sense of, I have an idea of what this is about. Or maybe I, I know that I don't know what this is about. Either way, there is something very firm and fixed in that assumption or in that relationship to what the world is, the world is pointing at. So what is it? In Dogen's Shobogenzo, there is a fascicle titled Busho, which means on Buddha nature. He says, hearing the term Buddha nature, many students mistakenly regard the conscious mind, which is caused by the movement of air and fire, as the awareness and understanding of Buddha nature. But who says that Buddha nature has awareness or understanding? Even though those who are aware or understand our Buddhas. Buddha nature is neither awareness nor understanding. Is neither awareness nor understanding. It cannot be described, it cannot be thought of. Well, we can imagine, but that's it. And he says, they make this kind of mistake because their study of the way is coarse. Those who are, who are mature as well as beginners in studying the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma, the Buddha way, should not fall into this. When you observe awareness, you know that awareness is not movement. When you observe movement, you know that movement is not thus. When you truly understand movement, you truly understand awareness. Studying Buddha and nature, and he says it as two separate words, when you get one, you get the other. We call it Buddha, we call it nature, we call it Buddha nature. redundant. But either way, either way, it will not lead. Looking at the word, it will not lead. It will not lead us to cut beyond or to get beyond words. It will keep us circling around that sphere. Then he says, some people think that Buddha nature is like seeds of grass and trees. 
When Dharma rain is abundant, sprouts and stems grow. Meaning when we are exposed to the Dharma, then Buddha nature will flourish because that's what it does. Otherwise, it's not. Right? That still is based on yes and no, having and not having. This is branches, leaves, flowers, and fruit mature, and their fruit contains seeds. Such a view is an assumption of ordinary people. If you come up with such an assumption, investigate thoroughly that each and every seed, flower, and fruit is itself pure mind. Already is beyond what we have assigned to it. And he says, even if you take up the view of ordinary people, the roots, stems, branches, and leaves are all are the all of Buddha nature that rises and perishes simultaneously with all things. So we can say, well, everything has, everything is of that nature. But that is saying already too much. Because it doesn't need that distinction. It has or it has not. But we see it on the sideline. We sit and observe and then make judgments and explain and quantify and try to figure it out. But it's happening all the time. It's just that the way we view it is problematic or is creating issues, primarily for us. You know, when we first enter a spiritual path, and maybe even years into it, we view it as a method that will help us discover the missing piece of the great puzzle of our lives. Be that Buddha nature and will eventually transport us from delusion to realization. And the problem with such a view is that it creates a division between where I am now and where I would like to be. I quoted yesterday from Linji, if you do not find it here and now, you will ne never find it anywhere. So thinking that way, it fortifies a fixed idea of a deluded being who does not have Buddha nature. And the fixed idea of a realized being, a realized being that does have it. Not me or not yet. So not only creates a division within us, it also creates division within people. So we may look at somebody and we may be envious or admire, look at somebody, oh, he or she 
has what I am lacking. Well, we do it anyway at home. Why should we come up here and do the same? What's the point, right? We do it with other things. The have and have not. So any idea of being somewhere or having something implies that there is someone who is moving from one location to another or someone who has the capacity to have or to lose a prized possession. And this is a common way, of, common way of thinking, but the fact that it is common does not make it true. The fact that we do it doesn't make it real. Well, it, make it makes it real for us, and it creates our reality, which definitely feels real. Well, in other words, the fact that we find it natural and comfortable to think in such a way, doesn't verify it. So maybe we don't understand how deeply we are vested in a self-based, distorted view of ourselves, others, and reality. It's deeply interlaced through all aspects of our moment-by-moment -moment interactions with life. And so the greatest task for us as practitioners is to examine this personally and experience the disintegration and deconstruction of our fixed views so we can merge with that which is always inherent. But even that is saying too much, isn't it? Because if I'm looking to merge I'm assuming I am disconnected. When will that happen? When will I be able to merge? Maybe it's not a matter of going somewhere else as much as looking at this, looking at the way we function, the way we think, looking at our assumptions. Daoji in the fourth ancestor said, day and night, whether walking, standing still, sitting or lying down, if you continuously contemplate things in this way, you will know that your own body is like the moon in water, a reflection in the mirror, heat waves in a hot day, or an echo in an empty valley. You cannot say that it has being, because even if you try to catch it, you cannot see its substance. You also cannot say that it has no being because it is clearly in front of your eyes. Right? So does it have or does it have not? Daojin is speaking clearly to the fact that there is nothing to deny and nothing to hold on to. And there's no need for picking and choosing between a yes and a no. Only when we don't jump between them and think we have to pick and choose, we can use yes and no 
as needed, not as something to be defined by. What we refer to as Buddha nature is, as Dogen says, neither awareness nor understanding. And it is so because it is beyond any, any and all parameters, any definitions or any conditions before we are born, after we die. It is so. Beyond. It's an interesting word, right? The problem is that when we hear the word beyond, we think it's referring to another place or another time. We think that it means it's not here. But it's only saying that we have to go beyond our immediate and automatic perceptions of reality. Beyond quick conclusions of the thinking mind or what we create in the mind. And beyond anything that can be accumulated. held or dropped. Buddha nature is, as we say, all-pervading. All-pervading, which means available at all times. If it's all-pervading, well, how can it skip this? This as this, and this as the one sitting here. All pervading except for me. Because I don't get it. Until I get it, it will skip me. So when we try to figure it out, try to conceptualize, we get stuck and frustrated. But then when we stop trying to understand, it appears with all its glory in the most mundane moments of our lives because it's all pervading. In the Jewel Treasure Treatise, it says, cultivating study is called learning. Cutting off study is called nearness. Going beyond these two is to be considered real going beyond. To study till there is nothing to study is called cutting off study. Thus it is said, shallow learning, deep, and deep enlightenment. Deep learning, no enlightenment. This is called cutting off study. Or this is going directly to, or going directly as. Or just going. Or cut away the going too, and just stay with just. That would be sufficient.
But essentially, this, the going beyond means going beyond ourselves. Now, can we do it now? Can we do it today? Can we do it here? Or do we choose to wait? Because we think the conditions are not yet ripened or ripe enough. So how do we go beyond ourselves? Uh, to go beyond yourself, you don't rush to assert your opinions. Right? Stay quiet and see what happens. Don't let that self assert itself so often. And the beyond actually will appear. Right? So not assert as often. Learn to listen more than talk. When you listen more than talk, you keep turning the attention to others and become more interested in their well-being. You become more aware of thoughts and emotions you have become identified with and then quell the desire to dwell in it. Or maybe don't feel the need to act as defensively when perceiving some attack on the self-image. It's very common. We do it a lot. Sometimes vocally, sometimes not. We just think about how could this person think about this or say that to me? Why are they rolling their eyes? Why are they looking at me funny? It goes a long way. to make us feel detached and disconnected. And then we respond in ways that perpetuate the feelings of disconnectedness. How does it end? Or when will it end, if not now, if not today? There are numerous ways we can do that on a daily basis. <clears throat> but most importantly, this is about moving from a static sense of self to a dynamic sense of being that is naturally aligned with impermanence rather than a being that views impermanence as a threat to its existence. As Dogen said, when you truly understand movement, you truly understand awareness. Studying Buddha and nature, when you get one, you get the other. And this is where we meet the great Zhaozhu. Always flowing and ready to assume the shape according to the need. Not having any fixed position. thus able to flow, not attached 
or identified with anything, yet always present and available to meet the moment fresh. The introduction to this koan describes the level of his attainment. A gold floating on the water, push it down and it turns. A jewel in the sunlight, it has no definite shape. It cannot be attained by mindfulness, but mindlessness or known by mindfulness. Immeasurably great people are turned about in the stream of words. Is there anyone who can escape? What happens when you put a gold or a beach ball in the water and you push it down? It keeps moving. It turns. It doesn't mind. It doesn't have an up and a down, a right or a left. It immediately adjusts because its shape is constant or continuous. It has no sharp edges. We have many sharp edges, don't we? Just look at how many times a day you get triggered. Then you'll know the sharp edges. How many times a day you feel bothered? How many times a day you don't act like a ball being pushed down in water? A jewel in sunlight, it has no definite shape. Depending on the Time of the day, right? You put the jewel in sunlight. Depending on time of the day, depending on the direction of the sun, you will see different things because it reflects reality. It does not have a desire to hold on to a particular kind of reflection. So it's open to life. So in this case, monk asks Yaju, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And the first instance, the first monk, Yaju said yes. And the footnote says, yet it, it has never been added. Yes, but it has never been added. No, what we call Buddha nature is not in question. But as soon as we say Buddha nature, we create, we create a conceptual gem that can be attained or lost. And that gives birth to the question of having or not having. And it says that in the commentary that Zhaoju said yes, using poison to get rid of poison, using sickness to get rid of sickness. 
The monk asked the question for being stuck in the mud of duality and oppositions. And Zhao Zhu knew how to be free-flowing within the mud. And he was able to meet the monk's question in a very fitting way. He is free to say yes when yes is appropriate to the need of the moment. So he said yes. And the answer is to the point. But the issue lies in the question of having or not having. For this monk, the answer raised another question. Following the same sickness of the mind. Well, since it has, why is it then in this skin bag? Now, it's a fair question to ask when we hold on to a fixed idea of Buddha nature or an enlightened being. And as with anything else, we create an idea of there is a discrepancy between our mental creation and life as it really is or as it appears. And as often happens, we prefer to hold on to the idea and throw away life. And then Zhao said, because he knows yet deliberately transgresses. You probably know by now that it never had anything to do with the dog. Right? People still look at dogs and think, well, Zhao was talking, or the monk was talking about the dog. And the monk may have, but Zhao was not. because he knows yet deliberately transgresses and the footnote says, don't assume he's not talking about you. Don't assume he's not talking about you. Stop seeing it or looking at it as a story that you think you understand or don't understand. It's about you. It's about your life. Now, today, As in the case of all koans or any Dharma-related text, who else is he talking about? One of the challenges of working with koans is to recognize <coughs> that they are intimately related to each of us. Often we may not understand something and think, well, it's not for me. So to see that it's intimately related to each of us and then to lose the conceptual created self to the living point raised by the koan. It's a living point. Each koan, each chant, each dharma-related text is pointing to the living reality. Now, So what does it mean to know and to deliberately transgress? A bodhisattva is the one who resides in this skin bag. The one who studies the mechanism of suffering and the cessation of suffering. And the one who commits to being of service to others. 
as a vehicle for liberation, regardless of how difficult or impossible it seems. It knows yet deliberately transgresses. We know. We know the challenges. Look at the four vows. Creations are numberless. I vow to free them, all of them. Delusions are inexhaustible. It never ends. Yet I vow to transform them. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. The land way is unsurpassable. I will embody it. I vow to embody it. Now each of those is going beyond common sense and transgresses a logical way of thinking. Yet it's what we do. It's what the practice is about. Right? It's not just about, well, meditate, find some peace, you're good to go. It's about others. It's about each other. And to know that you may never be able to accomplish the task, you may never be able to do it, yet, Yet you don't let that move you anywhere else. To know and to deliberately transgress, to go against the grain for the benefit of all. Now, when there's no fixed self, the doing is not measured by the outcome, so it doesn't matter. So nobody is there to measure how far have I gone, how many do I still have to save, when will I be done? Another monk asked Zhao Zhu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And Zhao Zhu said, no. And the footnote says, yet it has never been removed. Never been added, never been removed. Now this is the part that was taken out of this story and was made as the first koan in the Mumonkan collection. Zhao Zhu's Mu is considered a fundamental barrier to penetrate in our tradition. And mu here is translated as no, but it's not equivalent to our conventional usage of the word no. Since it's not negating anything. On the contrary, to what it seems, it's actually a total and all-inclusive affirmation. So the only thing it is negating is the one who is creating negation. But in conventional terms of the way we use words, Zhao Zhu dealt with the same question differently, saying yes to one and no to the other. Now, why would he respond in such a way that seems contradictory? Now, Buddha nature is an undefined essence inherent in every being and everything. It doesn't fall into any category. 
and it has no inherent characteristics. This is the reality Jarju speaks from, which is exactly why it's free to use yes and to use no in a flexible way that fits the moment and the person he interacts with. And his sole interest is to help each student awaken to the same reality we're all endowed with. So that's the intention of the yes, and that's the intention of the no. All we see is a yes versus a no, because we see in a divisive way. The human eye sees things as divided. In the commentary it says, if you say a dog's Buddha nature surely exists, afterwards he said no. If you, if you sure, if, still, if you, okay, let me read it again. If you said the dog's Buddha nature surely exists, afterwards he says no. If it surely does not exist, still previously said yes. If you say yes or no are just temporary responses spoken according to the situation, in each there's still some reason. That is why it is said that someone with clear eyes has no nest, has no fixed abode or fixed position. And the point of this monk's question was to broaden his perspective and learning. He didn't base it on his own fundamental endowment. Right? We ask questions not from our own fundamental endowment. We ask from not trusting that there is such a thing. So the monk then asked, all sentient beings have Buddha nature. Why does a dog have none then? And Jaharju said, because he still has impulsive consciousness. Now this is also translated as karmic consciousness. Now impulsive consciousness, karmic consciousness, manifests regularly in the reactive ways we respond to the world on a psychological, emotional, physical levels which happens during zazen, during everyday activities. Now, during meditation, we might encounter a thought or an emotion that seemed to come out of the blue. We don't know why am I thinking about this. But if we look at this from the inviolable law of cause and effect, the thought, emotion, or physical sensation occurred as a response to an internal or external movement which produced this particular reaction due to karmic chain of previous events we have been exposed to in the past. Nothing comes out of nowhere. We may not know, or we may not see the connection, but there are connections to what we have been exposed to in the past, directly or indirectly. And during everyday interactions, we often find ourselves reacting to situations and people in repetitive patterns, getting triggered and being pulled in familiar directions and experiencing cyclical formations of thoughts and emotions. And often, instead of looking at the fact that it, wait a minute, I've seen this many times before, well, no, no, it's he or she is the problem. Right? If we stop and look at it, 
wait a minute, if I have encountered this many times before, is it possible, is that to do with this particular situation or person? Which means I have access to working on it. Right? It could be anger, sadness, defensiveness, jealousy, pride, loneliness, despair, and so on. And these internal reactivities do not just appear out of nowhere. They are intimately connected and related to our past karma. So whether we are sitting on the cushion and encountering some movement, some thoughts, some emotions, or interacting with people and life, all of it is essentially, it has ties to the karma in one way or another when it appears. And because what happened in the past naturally manifests in what is happening now, it makes sense that we will experience such reactivities or thought patterns. And this is the impulsive or karmic consciousness which, if we do not know how to meet from the Dharma ground, will become the foundation of the fixed sense of self. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in tomorrow's day show. And this is how we, we shift our attention away from basing our being on our own endowment, as they describe the monk not doing, and construct a self based on our impulsive consciousness. The Buddha nature is not in question, but... It's just that as long as we are immersed in preoccupation with our elaborate perceptions, we will keep creating a limited and fictitious self. And will not experience the limitless capacity of Buddha nature. And the fact that we experience calming consciousness is neither bad nor good. It's just the way things are. And what's important is that we don't assign to it any fixed definition and learn to work with it by fully accepting the way it shows up in our lives. Now, fully accepting doesn't mean going with it. It doesn't mean obeying and allowing it to dictate what we say or what we don't say. But first, fully accepting the fact that that's the way it is. And most importantly, we don't want to ignore or suppress it or pretend that I am done with this or that, those patterns of the past are no longer showing up. Well, they may and they will at different times. Turning towards oneness or emptiness without fully acknowledging the workings of karma can be very harmful. Master Yongjia once said, carefree views of emptiness ignore cause and effect and invite endless calamity. So you can't just sit it out in Zazen. You can't ignore. One of the Common experiences students share revolve around the frustration of feeling stuck or falling into old patterns, even after practicing diligently for some time. You know, we enter the practice with the expectation that it will 
clear up the mess of our lives and yet we keep bumping up against the same harmful habits we are hoping to get rid of. And we want to get rid of it because we believe that our karma stands in the way of our true nature. But the freedom of our Buddha nature, true nature, is never bound by our karma and repetitive patterns. So why do we have to try to get rid of anything? What if we just acknowledge and learn to meet it, learn to work with it? And the good news here is that we can keep working on changing our reactivity or reactive patterns by accepting them. And by taking full responsibility to not point a finger to a person or a situation as the cause of what we feel. It's a very superficial way of understanding it or understanding ourselves. I'm pissed off because of you. You made me feel this way. Yeah, it feels this way momentarily. But if we turn it around and look and work with that, we will see that it was there already before the person said what they said or the situation appeared as it appeared. And that's good because it means, again, we have full access to working with it all the time. The verse, a dog's Buddha nature exists, a dog's Buddha nature does not exist. The footnote says, he beats them into one lump, forges them into one mass. He's not dividing. A straight hook basically seeks those who turn away from life. The footnote says, these monks should die today. And we can add to that, do not assume this is not talking about you. We should die today. To that to the divide between a yes and a no and a have and have not, or now and later. Now a straight hook, a curved hook, catches the masses because it gives us what we want, not what we need. And that's one of the reasons that there aren't that many people practicing Zen. It's, it's a straight hook. It doesn't appeal. It doesn't catch. Which means we have to do something. We have to rise to the occasion. We have to meet the challenges rather than follow along. Right? A regular hook naturally will catch. It's designed to catch. It's built for that. Many things we're exposed to are designed to keep us in a state of craving. So a straight hook 
catches those who go against the grain, those who don't obey habits. So we'll end with that. I just want to say something on a more practical note. Often, koans or talks, teishos, can be interesting, but then sometimes leave us with a divide. Okay, well, now what do I do with it? But when we look at this, Sishin, right? We look at what we're doing here. We look at, for example, jihatsu. It may seem daunting. It may seem like a lot that we have to do. Why would would you just have a buffet style and eat and just get it done with, get it over with, right? But it it is actually a wonderful opportunity to examine, right? To examine how we move because there is a way. There is a way to be more graceful. There is a way to be more gentle, more intentional in each moment. There is a way to be more whole, more unified. Because when we are paying attention, right, and we are paying attention not just to what we are holding, but to the one who is holding as one with what is being held, right? So the gentleness is not just with the meal balls. It's the gentleness with you, the gracefulness of your movement as you hold the jihadsu balls. So we're doing it, right? So obviously it's going to create a much more quiet environment, but that's secondary. The primary is that it creates a direct access point to what we call Buddha nature because it bypasses something in us, right? The why am I doing it? Why are we not doing something else? Fades away. Because our full attention is given in an undivided way, an undivided between self and what is being held, given to that action, to that moment. And there is a moment of unity. There is a moment of not asking about Buddha nature, not waiting for Buddha nature, but experiencing it. Experiencing the totality of life. So there's no yes, there's no no. There's no when am I going to pass move? What does it mean? That's all of it. Just it fades away. So keep that in mind, right? Not in the same way we keep things in mind, but keep that in terms of reminding yourself to come back to what you're doing, to what you're holding, to what really matters. The thoughts about are not as important as what is. Thank you.